a common way of defending yourselves, your family, your house was uh, sourcing landmines. They were produced in Bosnia and quite uh, cheaply available for people to get hold of them. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. Brought to you by three friends in three cities, New York, London and San Francisco. I'm Lucy and in this episode I'm talking to architect and researcher Rosa Rogina. Rosa is director of the London Festival of Architecture and teaches at the University of East London. She's worked for some of the world's leading architecture practices, including MVRDV, Grimshaw and Farshad Musavi architecture. Rosa grew up in Zagreb, Croatia, when it was one of the six constituent republics of Yugoslavia. Her early childhood coincided with the Croatian War of Independence. Take a listen to find out why this war is also known as a war on architecture, how this impacted cultural identity, and why thousands of landmines are still buried across Croatia today. Rosa, hi. Can you tell us just a bit about who you are? And also what Zagreb is like now for those of us who haven't been to the city. Thank you, Lucy, and thank you for inviting me uh, here today. I'm very excited to be discussing some of these topics with you. So I was born and raised in Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia. It's situated in central Croatia, not too far from the coast. Well, actually not too far from anywhere because Croatia itself is quite a small uh, country. I was born in 1989, still in Yugoslavia, and some of my documents do say Yugoslavia is my place uh, of birth. Back then, it was the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, founded in 43 during the World War II. Croatia was one of the six constituent republics, and it, it really reassembles what I would say a little Vienna or something of that kind. So a charming medieval old city uh, with then surrounding architecture reminiscent of Vienna and other central European cities. I think in Zagreb, but also in the surrounding area, you can see different layers of history and you can see how those come together in a quite unique uh, urban fabric. So if you you go through Zagreb, but even further throughout Croatia, you will find a really rich mixture of medieval architecture, even going all the way back to Roman Empire, then also traces of Austro-Hungarian monarchy and kind of more modern layers, um, starting from Yugoslavia, but also contemporary Croatian architecture nowadays. So it was always almost this like really interesting assemblage of uh, different environments and architectural contexts that shows the complexity of urban heritage and also the different kind of ethnicities and culture that have been occupying the territory in the last century. So what are your memories during this time? You're really young, but what does the place feel like? And do you have any specific moments you recall understanding that there was a conflict going on? I was age one to six when it's all, it was all happening. Uh, back then I was living in Zagreb, um, very central part uh, of the capital. And the location of our house was in a very close proximity to the official residence of the president of Croatia. So if any threat was posed or if any air force was targeting the residence itself, we would in a way be on that route or radius of planes approaching. 
So often we would get, yeah, a siren warning that we have to stop what we are doing and go down to the basement as that was considered to be the safest place in the house. So I do remember some family lunches where the whole family gathers around the table every Sunday and my mother prepares this glorious meal and then in the middle of it, the siren sets off and I know on one occasion my grandfather was, I'm just not going down, I'm too hungry, I, uh, I want to eat this turkey and I'm staying and those kind of weird moments of conversation, but no, we should really, you know, leave the table and leave this delicious uh, meal for maybe an hour or two later. So in a way, it was kind of, that new normal was built in a very organic way into my everyday experience. And do you remember feeling scared? Were you too young to understand the gravity of the situation? It's really hard to think about it now when you know the background information of why everything was happening and why my family was behaving in a certain way. I think it goes down also to normal uh, family behavior, which is obviously you want to protect your children, you want to make sure they don't know as much. So it might also be that back then I wasn't really to full extent aware what was happening and that by embedding it as part of our normal, let's say, was the way of my parents making sure that I'm not too much uh, concerned or frightened about the whole uh, situation. It, it's worth saying that Zagreb by itself was probably not the epicenter of whole warfare. It, the, the warfare was very much on the frontier and in some zones where actually the kind of overlay of different uh, ethnicities and mm, culture was much more evident than Zagreb itself. But I think where Zagreb comes into play, as well as perhaps cities like Dubrovnik and Siege of Dubrovnik, is uh, looking into this war and wider wars on, Bal on the Balkans as war on architecture. So a big part was not just about uh, targeting people and their homes, but it was also about direct attacks on heritage, which actually now looking back then and reflecting to, to what was happening in Croatia, and if you trace what we are seeing today in the Middle East or somewhere else in the world, it's, it, it's the same logic of trying to de destroy and diminish certain culture by targeting and eradicating their places they identify themselves with. And you see it very much as said in Dubrovnik as well, where the, the whole city fabric was destroyed without a real uh, warfare rationale behind it of defending something. It was purely directed on something that has a cultural value that is UNESCO listed, that people are very emotionally connected to, that they identify themselves with, similar with Bridge in Mostar in Bosnia and Herzegovina that was uh, representing that kind of con connectivity in between two communities. People were very kind of passionate about it and loved that place. And as soon as it got uh, targeted, the question was also around longevity, eternity, and people feeling that if a building can get destroyed or a bridge can get destroyed, that should be there forever. We are also very vulnerable as a human kind ourselves. So there is that kind of direct connection in between the built environment and human lives. And that's just terribly sad where the things that you associate with your culture and heritage are being destroyed. And of course, there's going to be so many questions around identity that come from that. How do you identify and what's your connection to Zagreb? Can you articulate something like that? It's a really interesting one because I do identify myself as fully Croatian, 
you might have different answers again in different generations. And there might be people who, who say they identified themselves as Yugoslavian. But my kind of upbringing and, you know, where I was born in the context of the whole timeline determines, yeah, my, my, my identification very much with being uh, Croatian. However, if you kind of dissect what I mean by Croatian, I think you will very soon approach different concepts within it, which, you know, one uh, might consider not to be Croatian. So again, going back to those layers of history and heritage that was built across this territory throughout centuries, uh, defines, you know, a terminology of what <laughs> uh, Croatian means in a, in a slightly different way that perhaps, I don't know, an Oxford dictionary would. How did the, how is the conflict visible now? How is it playing out in the physical environment in Zagreb, but also in Croatia as a whole? What would I be able to see now going around that part of, of the world? In, in terms of physical cards and places um, where you can still see the war, unfortunately, there are many of them. And it's especially the frontier part of, of the country where most of the conflict was fought and very little has been actually reconstructed and fully brought back to normal. And there are many villages where since the war, nobody has redeveloped or taken care of. So it's almost like this frozen environment that, that live in some time that is now way beyond us, but somehow maintained to be in the same form. And then there are many other places where fragments of cities or certain areas still are reminiscent of what happened now 30 years ago. So it's very common that you can enter a city such as Vukovar, which is one of our biggest cities in the eastern part of interior Croatia, where you can visibly uh, see bullet holes on different buildings. You can see how roofs were destroyed. You can see how public spaces have been uh, affected by the warfare. There was actually a big water tower in the same city that is still standing uh, undeveloped and reminding us of what has happened 30 years ago in that place. Unfortunately, it also goes down to the fact that as a country, we, we haven't been able to fully get back to speed in terms of recovery, redevelopment and going forward in some of those areas. And that support from abroad has also been limited and perhaps uh, too slow in some instances of uh, resolving some of um, these moments uh, in, in time and place. And then secondly, I guess something that was quite unique in the context of Yugoslavia was the diversity and uh, uniqueness of different families being uh, formed around very different cultures and ethnicities. And it was very common and it's still actually common that uh, Lots of my friends and people who I know would have four grandparents that come from four different constituent countries of Yugoslavia. Uh, and, and, and that was something that was really unique in that context that we were able to share and learn from these different cu cultures also in a very domestic environment. That's unfortunately not happening to that extent anymore. And it's becoming more obviously segregated as a con uh, consequence of lines being drawn in between different territories as well. And then the second thing is probably around how the war was fought and that the, limit, the, the resources available to people were very limited back then. So we didn't have much of access to very developed military equipment and weapons. So a common um, 
way of defending yourselves, your family, your house was uh, sourcing landmines in a way to, to support the army, but also to save your own space in a way with, uh, because they were produced in Bosnia and quite uh, cheaply available for people to get hold of them uh, in different ways. So it was around $2 per mine and people, especially living on that uh, perimeter, we were talking about would through that way secure their surrounding area of any enemies that might come on the territory. That was quite a tricky process because obviously the way how it works in traditional warfare is that the international law obliges you to map where you have placed that ammunition. But obviously, if you're buying it for uh, your own purposes, you're not obliged to do so. There is very little evidence where some of these deadly weapons were placed 30 years ago. And if we think each of them is active for over 200 years, then one might argue that actually the warfare is still continuing in some much more silent form today and in the on- ongoing year. That's unbelievable that yeah, you could get landmines for so cheaply for your own purposes and that they're still active and I guess that also begs the question of what that means for the environment so it's still destructing and eroding huge swaths of land I mean are those places cut off like I'm assuming you can't actually get to any of the places where landmines are still active so it means that you actually are are you closed off from certain portions of Croatia yes it really varies and I think what's interesting from a kind of urban or architecture perspective is how some of those military maps that have lines uh, of different thickness and density were now transformed in a, bu- in a built form. So that there are these like invisible barriers in nature or just around villages, which, which prevent people from crossing over. But actually, there is no visibility that something is different there because we don't really see those objects being buried under the ground. Uh, in terms of where they are and how it works, in most of the instances, yeah, it's a fully enclosed and fenced off uh, territory. Sometimes it's very deeply in a forest that obviously hasn't been uh, kind of accessed for a number of years because of that same issue. But sometimes it's just next to uh, a house and a territory. And again, it go- going back to that normal of, and what normal might mean for some people, there are people in, in parts of Croatia where, unfortunately for them, it's normal to be sharing their um, property boundary with an area that is considered still to be contaminated with landmines. And what I have been particularly fascinated with that part of uh, warfare is that if you look at international humanitarian law, it really only looks and accounts for actions during the physical conflict itself. And things that happened before the conflict. So why it was conducted and how it was conducted, which is actually on the timescale of nature and other other things around us, is a very small fragment of time. And nobody really or any kind of current law looks into any violence that is done post the warfare being closed and peace being achieved. And actually those landmines that might be active still in 170 years from now, it is very unclear who is accountable for any damage at that point. And as you have rightly suggested, for the environment, it's very toxic. Everything around landmines is very human-focused at the moment. And 
there has been unfortunately very little thought about impact it leaves to our, our environment. And then lastly, the whole demining op- operation of taking those landmines out is even more aggressive to the environment uh, itself. So it can leave soil fully infertile. It can, yeah, damage the kind of the overall fabric of it. So it goes much deeper down than just that explosive device that is placed in the ground. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. Incredibly sad, the kind of long-lasting impact of that. War is obviously a trauma that goes on for so long, but that's something that's actually tangible and physical and still causing a lot of danger to people. You can't really start to process or get over something unless all of the remnants of it have been dealt with in some way. Yeah, and then all of that kind of complexity of your where you're from and your upbringing, but then you go and you study it as your thesis. So how did it feel studying all of that conflict, especially the landmines, and especially because when you said there's there's no one held to account for all of that. So as you're studying and you're kind of hoping to find who is now responsible and who's going to clean up the area and you know kind of fix the the long term damage. I think easy and hard at the same time. Uh, yeah. Easy in a way because obviously I did want to contribute somehow locally and bring some value, you know, to the areas that certainly still be, do need help. But on the other side, it was very difficult because lots of academic research doesn't end up in very practical, immediate solutions. And often it's kind of constrained to that paper you submit rather than going out there and, and changing things yourself, which is in very very much in nature of how architects uh, and the wider field operate. So in that context, it was also hard because I felt there is a boundary to me really kind of leaving a, a practical impact beyond kind of mapping and uh, playing, you know, what, what's the condition there to broader audiences and forums imagine that being frustrating so what's um has there been any more research done you know where does your research sit within the kind of broader spectrum of research are there other people trying to hold someone to account to fix it Uh, locally not so much i think locally it's really focused around (laughs) let's repair and minimize the impact uh, as much as we can we are not really post that phase to be thinking about uh, who should we hold accountable and what are the ways of mitigating uh, that. But I think on the on the more global scene uh, of uh, whether it's writing or humanitarian law investigation, there is a recognition that there is significant gap in, in the humanitarian law of how do we uh, how, how do we perceive and account for any violence post uh, conflict. So I think there are lots of opportunity there to expand and similar how Princess Diana was fundamental of uh, making uh, us all aware of impact to landmines on human lives. It almost needs a campaigner of that kind of kind uh, and outreach to to bring this debate on on the next level, which is about environment itself. Yeah, because there must be so many portions of land like this, you know, all over the world, but yeah, I, I can't believe that there's not more being said about it and more being done to fix it for Croatia's sake. 
And then there's also the the earthquakes because you experienced them uh, when you were young as well. So there was not only this kind of conflict playing out, but there was also the kind of earth's fragility as well. Yeah. So in 2020, unfortunately for Croatia, it was not all about COVID, but it was also about two really, really impactful earthquakes. One being centered uh, around Zagreb, where uh, I grew up, and another one being centered uh, around the city of Petrinja, which is the city where I was researching all the landmines um, at Goldsmith University. And uh, both earthquakes were quite high in magnitude, so over six um, degrees, uh, which for countries like Chile or uh, Japan that are very accustomed to those kind of um, events was very devastating for Croatia because unfortunately buildings were not built to last um, that forward. So lots of urban environment did get damaged. Some buildings got fully collapsed, uh, but also there was that... uh, Social aftermath of it where obviously uh, during COVID people were advised not to go out, not to mix with people. And then, you know, earthquake hits and what can you do then apart from go out and gather in a place where you're safe. And I think that was, again, the moment where you really saw people coming together and helping each other, whether it's through, you know, I don't know, giving blankets at food or volunteering to Uh, go to other villages and places to, um, uh, you know, help uh, dig out uh, houses, repair roofs, provide uh, emergency support, uh, etc., etc. But I think it was unfortunate uh, series of events where different crises and uh, catastrophes layered one on top of each other. So the earth is kind of against you as well as the conflict kind of impacting you as well. If we go back to when the conflict itself ended, can you tell me how the how society responded? Did communities come together? How did people interact with one another? You to- talked about segregation. How did that kind of play out with the people that you knew and families around you? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very difficult topic still, and certainly it was back then. I think the difficulty was that because it was not just Croatian War of Independence, there were parallel wars in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there was later on war on Kosovo. It kept continuing, but just in, in different places. But the, the whole area as, as a whole was still suffering in different ways. In terms of the kind of community within where, where I lived and Croatia as a whole, people did slowly start going back to normal. But as I'm sure you would agree, it's, it's a quite uh, long and you know, hurtful process because many people lost their loved ones. Lots of people were psychologically affected by warfare, whether because they were on the frontier itself or they had to go through that same experience being at home, but aware that some of their lo- loved ones are there. Lots of people were displaced, lots of people either voluntarily or forced. I myself was living for a short period of time with my grandma in Slovenia as well. So there were lots of these kind of direct and indirect impacts that still carry on uh, until today in different forms. Obviously, as time is uh, passing, it will hopefully get uh, more and more healed, but uh, it's a very much still uh, sensitive uh, topic and I think it also very much depends on the generation. So generation of 
my parents, my grandparents, is much more embedded in that whole event and aftermath that perhaps my generation is or a future generation would be. And those things, it just takes lots of time to um, heal and just focus on other things rather than keep uh, screening back and reflecting to what happened now 30 years ago, really. Yeah. And the war obviously destroyed a lot of precious places and spaces of cultural significance. And so how did this impact everyone's feeling of identity and their connection to the city and Croatia? I think very mixed. I think lots of historical identity of where I come from was built on this idea of complexities of those identities, then sharing and learning from different backgrounds, different communities. And then suddenly, you know, it changes to, no, you're only allowed to think in one way and be identified with one particular way of, of thinking or ethnicity or background. And in a way, I came at the point where the division already happened. So I think if you were to speak with some of the older generation people in my family, probably the answer would be com completely different. And if, even if you look at the whole history of Croatia and those maps available online as GIFs where you see how the whole Europe was changing through time and the borders move a bit left uh, and right, if you point your eyes fully on Croatia uh, through that kind of period of, I don't know how many, past centuries, you will actually see that the border has been changing way beyond uh, the warfare. And actually, it was quite minimal what, what it changed through warfare. But actually, those layers of different histories and identities go all the way back to Roman Empire and Venice taking hold of, uh, of our uh, post- Turks invading on their way to Austria, Napoleon entering the area, Austro-Hungarian monarchy being non-aligned in World War II, etc., etc. So in a way, it's something that is quite common in this area and it's quite common to see an amphitheater and Roman palace, but also it's very common to see a very Viennese architecture in Zagreb as much as something else in another place and even like traces of Turkish empire and other influences. So I think we, we have been very used to different identities and the, the blend of different cultures. It's also we're quite small on the scale of the whole world. We do acknowledge there are all other uh, influences that, you know, shape who we are. But obviously it's now done in a slightly uh, different way. And I would say there are always the political trends and different kind of views on what Croatia is and how should we go forward from like really nationalist approach to people who are much more kind of open and acceptable to that kind of further mixing and richness. Yeah, for such a small country and, and city, there's so much complexity and there's just so much to take from that formative experience. And I know that you've studied this time as part of your work and you've looked at place and identity and what that means. And it's now playing out in your role as festival director where you're connecting places and communities. How do you think that formative experience has led you to do the work that you're doing now? It's really interesting because when I started to study architecture, which was back in Croatia as my bachelor degree was, I received it in Zagreb. Uh, my understanding back then was that architecture is a very traditional practice, that we build building, quite conventional approach to the whole industry. Whereas as soon as I started to dig a bit further, gained experience by working internationally, 
even moved to London to do my master's degree here, I got really excited about this idea that architecture does go much beyond uh, building and that we can have impact by using our kind of tools and knowledge in various different fields. So one of the things I did in London, I have also joined uh, research architecture ma master at Boltzmann University by, run by a collective called Forensic Architecture. Forensic Architecture are a research agency investigating uh, different human rights violations, and they carry out investigations either by themselves or on behalf of different communities and individuals affected by conflict worldwide. And what was really interesting for me in that particular point of my professional upskilling was that ability of using architecture tools and knowledge in a much broader field in a way how they particularly do it in a field of um, investigation, human rights, uh, in environmental laws and others. And I was particularly interested and maybe that's rooted also in the way how I perceived urban environment from early on was about uh, the city and the way how it changes and how much we both as professionals but also as everyday users of the city can we contribute to that uh, change long term? And part of the work that uh, London Festival of Architecture does and that I'm interested uh, about is that experimentation with urban fabrics. So how can we use temporary events, temporary installations, intervention to test much more permanent ideas? So short-term occupation that can then lead either to a directly a permanent change to that particular place or a series of policies or other tactics uh, that could contribute to shaping that place long term. So there's such a real need for in which the festival does so well. And so thinking about the time we're in now and what we've just experienced in the last 18 months, 19 months uh, with the pandemic, what are your reflections on this time having gone through the kind of collective trauma that you've gone through? And all of your kind of experience in that research, what are your reflections on the lasting impact of the pandemic? Yeah, it's unfortunate that people do mostly come together in times of crisis. And when things go bad, whether it's warfare or it's pandemic or it's any other crisis that we share uh, as human beings. And I think there are, there are lots to learn from these kind of moments. On one hand, to move and learn from how people come together and that sense of empowerment, sharing collectiveness, but also on the other hand, ability to act quite quickly and efficiently and rapidly. So things that we have seen throughout the pandemic, how local councils in London were quite quickly able to adjust um, their public spaces. So it, it catered much more for pedestrians rather than cars or cyclists. It has proven that those policies and ideas can be implemented much faster than they're normally worked around. And I think mapping how we act within moments of crisis, again, whether it's COVID-19 pandemic, warfare, or something else, is really interesting to be considered in terms of wider thinking about how we shape cities. And in terms of the, how society has responded to the pandemic and the kind of behavioural changes, what would you like to see happen there? I think in London, I feel like everyone's getting back to normal, basically. They've been so excited to come together again. And what kind of 
behavioural changes might we see play out in the long term from the pandemic? It's very hard to uh, predict. I think what was really fascinating for me throughout the pandemic is that empowerment of the, and celebration of the local and people being really mindful about supporting local businesses, about spending their time in the immediate uh, surrounding, caring much more about places of faith around them. And then secondly, helping each other. So thinking about sharing resources, being innovative, you know, anything from childcare to groceries and anything in between and beyond that. So how can we as a community yeah, work together and be aware of power we might have um, beyond our own household, but also with people who, who live in close proximity uh, with us. And I do think that also comes back to wider topics of how do we plan cities, how do we plan public space. I think the other thing that has been proven is that the access to public space has, is completely unequal in between communities, and that is something that had to urgently be addressed, and also that lots of further research and care should be brought into yeah, encouraging people to use their immediate surroundings and uh, making sure that resources available in that immediate space are up to standard. They, they need to be for those people. Um, yeah, I've loved seeing that too, what's happening at a kind of local level with people collaborating and helping one another, and I really hope that remains and I wonder how, in your opinion, how might we harness that local collective action into the kind of bigger, to tackle the bigger issues that we face, such as climate change? You know, how can we transfer that local activity into something that can tackle something on a global scale? Is there something we can do? Yeah, I mean, there, there has been a lot of talk about, obviously, two unprecedented but deeply connected global emergencies. So one of climate breakdown and another one of biodiversity loss and how we as a kind of a humankind can tackle those. I think there is a big recognition within the industry that obviously we are responsible for more than 40% of carbon emission worldwide. So we do urgently need to think how we can use less carbon intensive materials, how can we uh, create uh, structures that not necessarily are done of the materials that are uh, not the most environmental friendly? How do we go about circular economy or resource efficiency? But I would say on top of that, to answer your question, it's also about how do we engage this much broader pool of people in that process? not only to make them aware of how we can improve them, the industry itself for constructing, using and dismantling buildings, but also how we can make a behavioral change as an industry to a much uh, wider mix of people who will eventually be using those spaces. So I would say it's not really enough to make a building that will be carbon efficient itself, but it is also how can it trigger those further behavioral changes in, in people and citizens to make them aware, you know, how can each of us contribute. And I think people should feel empowered. People should feel they're listened to and people should in, in that way be encouraged to be more engaged in processes in, in future planning of cities. Because after all, those are the places we're all using and are responsible for how they're shaped in the future. How do you what can the city do to enable all of that? How can the city play a role in connecting people and en en enabling action 
for these big issues? Yeah, what can the city do more of? Uh, participatory processes, understanding that experts are not only architects, designers, developers, planners, and etc., but also experts are people who use build environment on a daily basis, which is basically all of us. And in a way, finding different ways of engaging uh, with them in that wider debate, which would scale really from long-term city-wide planning topics, but also to very smaller scale everyday conversations about what we as individuals can do to contribute to that change long-term. And that's the incredible role of the festival and your work there, because that's essentially what it does. It brings all of those people together, which is great. So either talking about the kind of festival plans or just what your big ask of London might be, what action do you want to incite from citizens going forward? You know, how do we learn from this? What do we do now to make the most of all of our experience for a positive change? I think we should all take responsibility. We should all rethink what we do and how we do it. And I think the city itself should um, look into ways and systems to get that participation on a much uh, higher level. Our theme for 2022 is ACT, which I think is very much in line about what we have been discussing now through the last few questions. The theme really came through the reflection of uh, last 18 months and feels like a really important um, and relevant continuation of our past annual theme, which was care. And it draws uh, back concepts from uh, this affirmation that yet in the last 18 months, we have all been almost like under an enforced passivity. And now it's time to really acknowledge and not just to be aware, but also to yeah act and take that responsibility. And I think it, it always comes back to if every little part uh, was contributing with even the tiniest contribution, the change overall would be massive. So it's really our aim is to use the festival as the vehicle and motivation for those kind of conversations and hopefully to some extent also influencing a much longer change. And what a better time to do that than now with uh, COP26 approaching and the whole environmental debate really ramping up in, into a very positive way. So hopefully we'll be able to address some of those issues very soon. Yes, it's the perfect time to instigate change and it's essential at this point. So I'm really excited to see what you do with the festival and it's just been so fascinating to learn more about Zagreb and your childhood there. But yeah, it's been a great conversation, Rosa. Thank you so much. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. Brought to you by three friends in three cities, New York, London and San Francisco. I find it so interesting hearing Rosa talk about identity and the role of places and spaces and environments in the makeup of that identity, be it sacred spaces or just local public spaces, which we've all grown closer to during the pandemic as we've needed them so much more. And Rosa talks so eloquently about the makeup of her own identity and what Zagreb means to her. I just really enjoyed how she spoke about that. I visited Croatia many years ago and it's the first place I've ever been where I met people my age who had lived through armed conflict and they were like oh we used to sit up here on this hill when we were little and watch the missiles 
being fired from boats into the city. I was like, what? And it was my first exposure to people my age, like my contemporaries, and realizing how they had a completely different upbringing. Another thing we did on the trip was a, a lot of hitchhiking, which is something I had never done before, but it was how they got around. <laughs> and uh, the cars would be coming down the road and they'd be like, oh, not that one. And I couldn't tell, I couldn't see any difference in the cars, uh, but they could tell, like, like they could tell like who, who are our friends or our people and not our people. So there's like this really complex system of identity and, and, and factions in the same area, same city. And that had a, a huge effect on my perspective of the rest of the world or how people my age exist in other parts of the world. To me, it felt very relevant to what's been happening with the COP26 conference because in Croatia, it was, it was cheap and easy to put landmines in the ground, but the long-term effects are really devastating. And to me, that's the same issue that we're facing with climate change. We have to deal with the cleanup of things from the past and that's not easy to do, especially when our systems are driven by short-term thinking and short-term agendas. So like a really, isn't it like a metaphor for like a political landmine? Like it seems like no one wants to touch those things. They're, the, the removal of them is difficult. The, the, the fact that they're there is difficult. It's a, it's a hard problem to solve that no one can see unless something tragic happens. And it takes people like Rosa talking about it and making sure that we're not forgetting about that and trying to drive attention to it. As she gave the example of Princess Diana, you need people with a large profile to draw attention to things that can't be seen. She also talks about the sort of war on architecture. So like the destruction of things that have cultural significance being used as a sort of tactic of war. I thought it was interesting that a war on architecture, she put it, becomes a war on heritage. At that example of sitting around a dinner table with four grandparents from four different cultures. And, and the point of a war like that is to really stop that from happening. That's, you know, there's two great tragedies there. The, the loss of heritage, person to person, the loss of heritage in the built environment. Do, do we know where or what other wars or wars on architecture she used that term? I mean, certainly that's been ha happening in Afghanistan and yeah, of Syria, where you have these, you know, just unbelievable, unique in the world architecture and it's being used as a proxy. And, and if you're trying to put borders up everywhere, that's no longer your land anyway. It's someone else's. You care less about it. I think Rosa feels that we need more processes like the London Festival of Architecture where people can participate in managing the environment around us. So it's not just architects and planners and developers, but it's everyone. And I think the London Festival of Architecture does a great job in creating that first step where people can get engaged. Yeah, I think she's going to do great things with the festival. I definitely see her role as festival director being quite big and bringing people together to do just that. <laughs>